and welcome to What China Wants with me, Sam Olson and Stuart Patterson. I'm going to read you a few quotes here I've taken from newspaper articles over the last few months about the attitudes of banks looking at investing in China. 23rd of June 2022, JP Morgan thinks the darkest days for China have passed. 9th of June 2022, investment banks say it's time to get back into China, says CNBC. 31st of January 2022, Goldman Sachs unveils big plans for China. So Stuart, these quotes obviously show that there's still a lot of interest in investing in China. But as you have pointed out quite a lot in the podcast so far and in the newsletter before that, perhaps there are increasing risks to investing in China. And today we're going to be joined by someone who knows a lot about market sentiment about investing, not just in China, but uh, obviously investing all over the world. Anna McDonald. Anna works for Amati Global Investors, an independent specialist fund management business based in Edinburgh. And many of you, especially if you are an early bird like me, will know her as a market commentator for BBC Radio 4's Today and Radio 5's Wake Up to Money programmes as well. Welcome, Anna. Thank you, and it's lovely to be here. So, um, I suppose, Stuart, you're going to do a lot of the, the questions here. This is much more up your street than mine. But I, I thought I'd just start off with this OK, just by asking you sort of what's happened over the last couple of years. Because I remember sort of two years ago when Alibaba was trading at $300 a share, there was still a lot of optimism about putting money into the mainland. But what was the attitude there? Why was there so much sort of optimism a couple of years ago about investing in China? Well, I look at this through the lens of the UK companies in which we invest in. But from a broader point of view, I would say that alongside uh, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, there was this tide of enthusiasm about um, riding a wave of this burgeoning middle class in China that weren't only demanding goods from overseas and from Western companies that could provide them and perhaps build up supply chains in in China to, to supply them, but also they were on a significant effort to try and boost their own domestic demand. And this is, you know, something that we thought that globally allocating investors got into that and 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 kind of overcame any kind of issues that they had from an ESG point of view. I always think it's quite interesting when you listen to Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan's podcasts about their general thoughts on the market, that they really do tread very carefully around discussions around China. And that's probably because as you say, they've invested a lot in their footprint there, and and they've 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 tried to make um, investing in China um, as kosher as investing in many other economies that we might perhaps know a little bit better or have more boots on the ground in. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I was reading the other day that UBS, for example, have actually hired special editors for their China product to ensure that the verbiage that analysts use around sensitive issues is not uh, deemed offensive to the authorities. And so there's clearly quite a lot of self-censorship going on at the financial institutions. You know, and obviously there's a fine line between the way one couches and articulates an investment thesis and, and, and disinformation. Because at some point, you actually have to shy away from telling the truth to avoid offending the Chinese authorities, I would guess. But I would say, Sam, I would just add that I think, you know, two years ago, there was a lot of 
optimism about the liberalization of Chinese capital markets, that there were steps to induce foreign investment into the bond market directly, for example. And that prompted, obviously, a huge swathe of reports and and opinions from pension fund consultants, as well as big fund managers, pointing out, you know, the the obvious that is China is a large part of the global economy and a very small part of global capital markets, and that foreign investors were dramatically underrepresented in those capital markets. And therefore, you know, over time, there would be structural growth in those, those capital markets and investors had to get into it. I mean, Anna, how would you describe the journey for those investors over the the last two years, because subsequent to that first wave of euphoria, we've seen some policy measures out of China. I'm thinking here of the sort of clampdown on the big tech and the three red lines policy, which impacted the property companies that have not exactly been investor friendly. Yeah, I think you only have to look actually at how entrepreneurs, we talk about Alibaba, we have to think about how Jack Ma and others are being treated to really reflect that even even homegrown entrepreneurs have had a, there's been a complete change of attitude. I think that when you think about investments, you've got to think about the cost of capital of your investment. And I would say that cost of capital has gone up, the risk has gone up of investing in China. I think that it's become increasingly clear that as an overseas investor, that you're almost a secondary investor. You become lower down the pecking order should something go wrong. And actually, I think some companies have come to question how easy it is actually for them to extract themselves for investment. Or even we invested in a company that had a cash balance in China. Um, And when you actually talk about how do you get that cash out of China, it's not nearly as simple as you might have thought. They can pay themselves a dividend out of China, but they can't actually just take everything out that they want. So we can't look upon that cash as being true cash. It's not freely available cash in the true sense of the word. So those kind of things have started to to make people realise how much of a different environment it is, how authoritarian it is, and who the main person in control is, which is often not who you might think. That's been overlaid by the crackdown on COVID that they've had and the slower economic growth that they've been delivering. I think the World Bank this week reduced their expectations for GDP growth from 5% to 2.8%. And so that's also made it clear that, you know, perhaps things aren't going quite as swimmingly. And I'm sure, Stuart, you would always think that you take those GDP expectations that China give you with a massive pinch of salt anyway. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, because clearly one of the things that differentiates China from any other investment, uh, just purely looking at it from the economic side rather than any ESG side, is the opacity and the lack of information, uh, which you've alluded to. And of course, this has been known for a very long time. And, and you know, when the focus in the tech companies, for example, suddenly re-emerged on variable interest entities, as an example, and the fact that you know foreign shareholders didn't actually own shares in the operating companies. They owned shares in a company that had a series of contracts with the underlying company that made it was a workaround to basically break Chinese law. That's been known, but of course, there's nothing like a, a cyclical downturn to focus people's attention on the negatives, however well known they were before. I, I suppose, Anna, wearing your ESG hat, which I know that you're you're very passionate about, when we look at this sort of sea change that is taking place amongst portfolio investors in China, as they've sort of metaphorically have had their heads handed to them in terms of the financial losses that they've taken, is it possible to 
disentangle the two drivers of this change of opinion. On the one hand, you have the pure economic loss that they've taken, which no one ever likes. But on the other hand, my sense is that people have become more aware and more alert to the ESG implications of investing in China. You know, I'm thinking here of the UN reporting on Xinjiang, for example, where it's getting harder and harder now to ignore that and just dismiss it as rumour and hearsay. Yeah, well, I mean, I spoke to a a very small company in, in the UK that provides emotional goods and so on to big brands such as Google or British Airways, various big brands. And a lot of promotional goods, as you can imagine, are things like coffee mugs and pens and everything like that are sourced out of China. The primary um, aspect now when they're signing contracts with these big companies is we cannot have a scandal on our hands. These goods must come from proper manufacturers and they have invested a lot now at having people on the ground there who are able to check those check the supply chain, check the first tier manufacturers, check the second tier manufacturers. And that's giving them an absolute competitive advantage against some of their competitors. These global brands don't want to take the risks of exposure to being associated with any contentious areas, whether that's um, Uyghur Muslims or poor environmental practices and things like that in China. So as I say, having people on the ground and be able to investigate those supply chains is seen as a significant advantage. So, Anna, it's interesting, uh, just picking up on a few things you said in the last few minutes, what's fascinating to me as someone who's worked in China for a long time is that many of the things that you've mentioned have been things that needed to be worried about for a long time. For example, getting money out of the country. Um, I've had many clients over the years who've complained about the fact that they've made money in China, but what do they do with the cash? And getting it out and repatriating it has been a challenge for a long, long time. And then the issue around the Uyghurs and other potential human rights issues within China, um, whether it's prisoners or whether it's huge amounts of people executed each year. Obviously, that's different now than it was a while ago. But the fact is, is that all of these things come together and making it a difficult place to uh, look at from a business point of view, if you want to take into account all of the ethics that the West demand of its own companies. So my question is, if these things have been an issue for a while, why is it only now that companies are beginning to make a fuss about it in the sense of actually changing their investment strategies to do with China? I think it's because from an investor's point of view, um, so many more dollars are flowing into ESG style funds. Now, I don't think that the way they screen their investments is altogether the right way. We do it quite differently at Amati. We do it very much on an individual basis and we very much overlay. We look at the Freedom House score. So basically how free a country is to express the free press and to express their points of view, because that usually inversely correlates with how autocratic a country is. So the freer a country is, the higher the Freedom House score, the more likely to be more democratic it is. So we think that's a very powerful way of looking at whether the people in that country are actually getting the benefit of the investments. Or, for example, for a resource-rich country, will those riches likely flow down to all citizens? And it's pretty much true that the the less democratic a country is, the less this is likely to happen, that, that the mass will benefit. That's just the way we look at ESG investment. But in terms of there are many more ESG dollars, there are companies that want to be seen as ESG 
they've got to show improving scores in various different metrics. So by paying more attention to it, they can show that they're doing that and they will then show, often it's it's the delta, it's how much are you improving on your ESG score that can drive investors. The other aspect is that companies are now seeing that there is an, uh, an economic advantage to be gained to providing alternatives, whether that's alternative sourcing of goods and services that's outside China so that um, companies can de-risk their supply chains. Or it's, as I mentioned with that company earlier, that they can see their investments in making sure that the supply chains are clean, that they can therefore have an economic advantage in doing that, whether they can charge higher prices and deliver better margins or however it is. So I think those are the main factors behind that. One of the interesting things you alluded to there was the difference between your approach and maybe other people's. Some of our listeners, I think, will probably be confused by the fact that there doesn't seem to be any standardization as to what constitutes an ESG-friendly investment. So who is kind of making up the rules and setting the standards? Is there a a framework emerging, that sort of a standard-setting body that is accrediting a fund as, or certifying it and saying these people follow best practice in selecting their investments from an ESG perspective? Um, there are several different screening services that you can subscribe to. Even if you have something like a Bloomberg or a Reuters terminal, you can subscribe to these additional layers of screening and they can give you scores for each aspect. We very much drive our own process and our own screening because we think different things are important. We, for example, if I tell you that after the invasion of Ukraine, Refinitiv said that Rosneft and Gazprom had higher ESG ratings than Serica, which is a UK-based company providing that 5% of the UK's natural gas. This makes absolutely zero sense to us that investing in Gazprom was somehow better from an ESG point of view than investing in something that was going to ensure our domestic gas supply. So there's a lot of contradictions in the way the ESG screens are run and often one ESG provider will give quite a different score from another. But the main factor for not only thinking that we could do it on a more thoughtful basis, but most smaller companies are not really even covered yet by these screening factors. So it was essential that we developed our own model for it. Bigger asset managers have huge departments doing this, and they will work alongside the analysts on individual stocks. And they will often still use a lot of these screening services. So no, there's no definitive approach to it. And I think that's probably the right thing because it means that you do have to consider each company on its own basis. I'm sure that there probably are index funds that just combine an index with an ESG score. But I would argue that that probably isn't going to drive the best forms of allocation in a thoughtful ESG-focused or ESGH, we call it H, meaning human capital. They won't drive quite the right outcomes. I mean, that was seen in earlier this year when I received an email from Jefferies asking if I wanted to join a call listening to their experts talking about whether defence stocks were now the new ESG holding, whereas you know most investors had shied away from defence stocks and then realised that perhaps it was quite sensible to be able to protect your own country first. So it's a tremendously complicated area and it's got lots of different views in it. And there's been huge developments in it, huge strides forward. And you can understand the motivation of a lot of the ESG funds. But at the same time, 
we know that there's been quite a lot of what we call greenwashing with companies or funds saying that they are very much focused on ESG and it's sometimes just seen as a way to charge slightly more on your fund management charge to add a bit to it because you say you've got an ESG overlay. We've seen quite recently that Morningstar have slashed the number of funds that they describe as properly sustainable. And that's quite interesting in itself. So and that's very, very interesting about the ESG standards and what have you. But, but when you're looking at potential investments and looking at companies to potentially buy stakes in, are you seeing an increased amount of evidence to support the sort of what China wants view that the global economy is bifurcating along sort of ideological lines between China and the West? Is, is that something that's a concern for corporates? And are you seeing action on that? Yes, we are actually. Um, there's a company that floated on the UK stock market about 18 months ago. It is based really out of Toronto, but they felt that a UK listing would be of benefit, get them good visibility. They license IP for chip design. And we all know how important the market is for for semiconductor chips and the demand for smaller and smaller chips is growing ever greater. And this company is right at the front end of designing the smallest three, four nanometer chip designs. They had a joint venture in China as well as having their Toronto base. And they felt this gave them a foot in both camps, really, that they would be able to grow their business in the US and Europe, as well as benefiting from China, where we all know that they've really wanted to be able to to grow their own um, semi-capacity on the mainland. However, AlphaWave raised quite a lot of capital on flotation in order for acquisitions. And they found a good acquisition in the US called Open5. Now, this meant it had to go to approval, and CFIUS is the US regulator for that. And they have approved the deal, but it means ultimately that as part of the approval, their JV in China will have to somehow be extricated from. And this really is something that has their view in terms of the opportunity that they would have in China. They will fully admit since flotation has meaningfully changed. And they would also say that it's interesting for them that Chinese companies in return do not want to be so reliant on on, on Western companies. So actually, it's something that's sort of coming to a, a kind of natural conclusion in a way, but something that very much has changed over the last 18 months. I think that companies really are assessing their exposures in all sorts of different ways. On another example, I suppose, is a small company listed in the UK that it makes spectacles and lenses and it kind of wants to become a, the next Essilor Luxottica. Most spectacles, I think it's around 90% of components come from China. So it's a hugely efficient supply chain. And so urged by its customers, such as uh, Spec Savers and Boots and Grand Vision in the US, they are really ramping up capacity in Vietnam. And actually now in Portugal to try and uh, diversify away from those those supply chains. And it's being seen as, it's being given really high priority by those big opticians, those big chains. So one of the things that I would ask is, uh, you know, looking at our research on the complexities of the global supply chain is, it's all very well to set up new facilities in Portugal, but where do they get their inputs from? Are those inputs coming from China? So therefore, in effect, you haven't really diversified away from issues that could occur on the mainland? 
Absolutely. I mean, that is still some of the main issues is that the components do still come from China. So they need to start thinking about not just the final steps, the manufacturing process, but then thinking about the components that are going into into that. So yes, it is it is a big issue. The problem is that China has built up hugely efficient supply chains. Okay, they may have been a bit log jammed over the last 24 months, but those supply chains are very difficult to replicate. So this is, is not an easy fix. And whilst we might think that French shoring is going to provide the answers, it's still, I would say, we've hardly begun the process. Um, Anna, thank you very much indeed for joining us today and giving us your insights. And uh, it's particularly useful, I think, for our audience and ourselves to hear the anecdotes from the front line, as it were, as to you know what corporates are facing in their struggle to diversify away from China. So thank you very much. And that's all from What China Wants. And we'll be back next week. Thanks very much. Bye.